This is um, such a short retreat. It's such a mini retreat and we're trying to fold so much in. Um, and it's and it feels so valuable that, that we're getting together as as our different communities coming together under um, the umbrella of LGBTQI Sangha. Um, it's particularly ironic for me that we're creating this kind of environment of peacefulness and directly across the river is West Point. And, um, and you know, there's some karma there around around balancing this energy in the world that, that, that we live in and how what we do here is so important. And I just want to return to that, that original theme that we began with around coming home, coming back to that place, that inner place. Because often that, that feeling of belonging is difficult for for us, when external conditions create these experiences of exclusion or separation or isolation, then the first noble truth really comes into being that, that life is painful. And then there's that internalization of this, this external dynamic. The external oppression that can lead to the internalized experience of self-judgment or self-hatred, or even if it's just the more subtle forms of self-denial and neglect. We all know what the proverbial closet means, although most of us, for most of us, it's not proverbial. It's actually been a visceral experience for us. And in a mainstream culture with it, all of its unconsciousness, even the highest teachings, even the teachings that lead to freedom, sometimes can't be absorbed without the right conditions. So even in the Buddha's time, and he was called a teacher with perfect skillful means, which means that that he could tailor the teachings to land in exactly the way that was needed. Even in, in, in his time, people did not awaken when they heard his teachings because the conditions weren't right. So finding those conditions for each of us to be able to relax into some place of safety some place of refuge where the defenses and the protections are not needed to explore these, these profound questions about who we are. It's such a rare opportunity and these culturally specific retreats were my own Dharma gate. I mean, I, I, for in my early practice, I, I um, experienced what sometimes is called the bounce factor. You know, I'd go to a meditation center or I'd go to a retreat and I'd never return because I just would not see myself reflected. And it was, and at the time, there were no um, Dharma events that were 
geared towards people of color. And when I found an LGBT retreat, and it spoke to that piece of my identity, I just began to relax. And I began to receive the teachings in a different way. It's so critical to find that, that practice of Sangha, that experience of community. Because when we're only dealing with the defended reality, when we're only dealing with survival, we can't let all of life in. And that's perfectly understandable when the conditions are about oppression or difficulty or challenges in the world. It's risky. Just this last month, <clears throat> the Gaiman's Chorus in San Francisco debuted um, a, um, a piece called Testimony. I, I highly encourage all of you to um, YouTube it because it's absolutely gorgeous. And it was written by, uh, it's a collaboration by Stephen Schwartz who wrote Wicked and um, Dan Savage who created um, It Gets Better. And so um, Savage um, gave um, Schwartz all of the material of the It Gets Better project. And it's an eight-minute piece transitioning from these lives of these young queer adolescents into um, the adult messages. And you can hear it in the lyrics. I don't want to be like this. I don't want to be who I am. Every day I don't change. I blame myself. I'm not trying hard enough. I don't want to be how I am. When they find out, no one will love me. I'll lose my family and all my friends. I'm trapped like a fish with a hook in its mouth. I'm impersonating the person I show as me. I'm I am an imposter. I am a spy behind enemy lines. I pack my feelings so deep inside me, they turn to concrete. Every night I ask God to end my life. I am an abomination. God, take this away or take me away. Today, I'm going to hang myself. I'm trapped. Today, I'm going to slit my wrists. I'm stuck. Today, I'm going to jump off my building. Take me away. Take me away. Take me away. Hang in. Hang on. Wait just a little bit longer. I know it now. I know it now. If I had made myself not exist, there is so much more I would have missed. I would have missed so many travels and adventures, more wonders than I knew could be, so many friends with jokes and secrets not to mention, the joy of living in authenticity. Sometimes I cry, life can still be hard, but there's no part of me still crying, hide me. I would have missed the chance to sing out like this with people I love beside me. I have been brave. I grew. 
and so did those around me. And now look what a life I've earned. It gets more than better. It gets amazing. It gets astounding. If I could reach into my past, I'd tell him what I've learned. I was more loved than I dared to know. There were open arms I could not see. And when I die, and when it's my time to go, I want to come back as me. I want to come back as me. It's that access, it's that accessing of this experience of belonging wherever we are in this world. And sometimes there's the experience of joy, sometimes there's injury, but underneath all of the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows that encompass each of our lives, there is no life in this life plane that is only about the sorrows or only about the joys. And in that full range of our life is this capacity to hold all of it in this stillness of our awareness. Our practice really invites us to all of who we are. We said we invite all of who you are, not leaving any aspect of yourself behind. And it really takes this, this practice of sangha and community, this third refuge. Maya Angelou writes, the ache for home lies in all of us, the safe place where we can go as we are and not be questioned. Sayado Utejaniya, who is one of the current Burmese teachers, he actually is um, uh, teaching at the Forest uh, Refuge um, in, in Massachusetts. The meditating mind should be relaxed and at peace. Both the mind and the body need to be comfortable. And we begin to explore that in this safety of community. This is why these culturally specific retreats are so important for our community's practice. And each of you must have sensed something like this, even though you may not have come to a queer retreat before. These are two experiences. In the company of heterosexuals, I am always to some extent on guard. I am old enough that when I came of age, being queer was still listed as a mental disorder. Boys in my high school would used to boast of going and rolling queers. There were very few precious, ex with very few precious exceptions, sex was something desperate and dangerous and done with someone you didn't know. Nowhere I looked, nowhere were there any positive messages or role models. A person just doesn't get over growing up like that. I have dealt with crippled self-esteem and depression all my life. So in the retreat last weekend, I experienced a momentary thawing of my frozen heart that I'm quite sure would not have happened in a general retreat. 
It was so beautiful for me to be in the company of other gay and bisexual men having humbly come to practice. And this huge lump of unprocessed pain began to move. I have work to do, and I will seek out queer Buddhist environments to do it in. I too am gay and a lesbian, and this is the first time in my 42 years of being on the planet that I've heard a gay relationship discussed so tenderly and honestly and thoughtfully, not to mention in such a sacred space. I was deeply moved and sobbed tears of joy in finding, quote, my people and my place and a path that works for me, but also the sorrow for all those years of wandering and feelings of feeling lost. It is really difficult to do this spiritual practice in isolation. We were not meant to, as we had mentioned before, we are not meant to do this alone. And so we start as we come into the hall and sit and get and become aware in an intimate way, in the intimacy of silence, how we are with each other, how we breathe together. Have you noticed that, that when your own mind gets distracted, it, it can come back to the breath just by realizing the person next to you is doing the same thing, is supporting you in that same way. There was a retreat that, that I taught in which, um, and sometimes people have different breathing patterns, right? So, so you know, there are different um, rhythms and different sounds that people make. And so in one of the, uh, the practice meetings, this, this person was really complaining about the person next to them and how loud they were breathing, that they were almost snoring and, you know, could I do something about it and speak to them as practice? And, and this went on for a few days. And, and for whatever reason, you know, that person that was of such irritation um, got up and switched to a chair or anyway, they moved in the room. And the next practice interview was about how much they missed that person. <laughs> how much that that in the silence they had actually gotten to know the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. This is an intimacy in the silence that we only experience with our husbands and wives and partners and, and maybe our families of choice. And we are expanding that intention of intimacy without the conventions of social conversation, I need to look like this, I need to, you know, um, I, I need to find out who you are, you need to understand who I am. Beyond all of that, to be able to be together in this, in this gentleness. And this is where the intimacy becomes a door inter, into interconnection. So in the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the foundations of mindfulness, 
it is written, the noble ones abide contemplating internally. They abide contemplating externally. They abide contemplating both internally and externally. Sounds really simple. It's actually a profound teaching because it is not about just an internal practice. So Analayo, who is one of the sort of very um, um, popular but also deep commentators on, on the Buddhist scriptures, has written that what this internal-external practice is speaking to doesn't require psychic powers. It's not about you know, reading someone's mind. It only takes awareness and some degree of common sense. For a balanced development of awareness, this shift from internal to external is of considerable importance. Awareness applied only internally can lead to self-centeredness. One can be excessively concerned with what happens with and within oneself while at the same time remaining unaware of how one's actions and behaviors affect others. And we know how to do this already. We do. We can feel it in our own relationships. I, um, bef- right before I came here, I, I finished teaching the month-long retreat at Spirit Rock. So I was away from home. And, um, and, and, these, these, and I've, I've been doing this for a while. So um, my husband, Stephen, has had to go through these cycles of... of Absence, and it's and as you know, it's always hard to be the one left behind. And so, um, I came out of the month-long retreat, and I was preparing to go to this one, and he couldn't come, even though he wanted to. And um, and I was packing, and I looked up, and and I saw something, and uh, I said, "What's wrong?" But I knew what was wrong. I knew without him actually saying anything. And so, you know, that, that allowed me to realize, you know, that I needed to drop everything and be with what was arising in that moment. We know how to do this. It doesn't require psychic powers. This internal reflection occurs before the external reflection. Our internal reflection provides the basis, the understanding of our own feelings allows the capacity to empathize with others. And this connection between internal and external contemplative practice is the foundation. It's the foundation of bridging our personal spiritual practice with a collective practice of transformation the socially engaged practice. Internally and externally means that the experience is both and. It is this expansion from just the reflection, the awareness inside to a relational one, not just to individuals, not just to communities, but as those of you who know in the metta practice, we have this phrase, to all beings. That's the intention. 
Dr. King has written, we are tied together in the single garment of destiny, caught in an inescapable network of mutuality. Whatever affects one directly affects all. For some strange reason, I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the way God's universe is made. This is the way it is structured. This internal and external awareness allows us to realize how interconnected we are. And as we were saying earlier in the weekend, the Buddha actually designed it within the practice of Sangha. That the monastic community is completely dependent on the lay community. And the lay community is completely dependent on the monastic community. We aren't supposed to do this alone. And so each time, each moment is an opportunity to practice this. So can be, we be aware, even as we exit this hall, I mean, the places where the shoes are is a crazy place. Negotiating how to get out of that door into your shoes and where you're going. It's a traffic jam. So, this shows my age a little bit, but in 1984, um, I was in Tokyo at a, at a conference and um, Bruce Springsteen was opening his um, Born in the U.S. A tour. And through various things, um, we got tickets. And um, so bit just bear with me. But it was a great concert. And um, it was in the um, 1960 uh, Olympic Games Stadium. So 22,000 people. And so he did his concert. And uh, before the concert, the, um, there was an announcement in both English and Japanese, um, please don't stand in the aisles, please don't um, block the, the entry points during the concert. And then after the concert was over, there was another announcement, but this time it wasn't made in English, so the person I was sitting with and I were just you know, talking while you know, after the concert was ended because nobody was moving. And we thought, is there a part two? <laughs> so we just sat there and we were talking again and, and we realized that the entire stadium was exiting row by row without any, you know, need for guidance. So fast forward 20 years and and um, uh, Stephen and I went to a George Michael concert in, in San Jose. What a completely different experience. <laughs> People were standing in the aisles. They were at, we actually left a little bit early because the risers were shaking so much that we actually felt, you know, at risk. This is the impact of internal and collective awareness on a society when the Dharma is infused 
into its culture. And each piece of the Dharma practice is an opportunity to expand from the personal to the collective. So one of the, because the, the retreat has been so short, we haven't really unfolded the eating meditation very, very much. But one of the invitations around the eating meditation, which you might want to try, is to stop eating five bites from full. Because normally, we are eating 50 bites beyond that point. And we, and we eat. And the only way that you can actually follow that invitation of five bites from full is if there's awareness. So if there's awareness, you realize, oh, okay, I'm reaching that point. But, you know, I don't think that invitation was actually given just for eating practice. It is actually a practice to bring into our lives. What if we were to buy our clothes five bites from full? What if we were to use our gasoline and resources five bites from full? What if we were to live in the world with that attitude? This is the invitation of the Dharma. And this is, is, is how our personal practice expands to really transform our collective experience. This internal and external awareness of meeting the moment as it is, this paying attention to the moment as it arises, is incredibly healing. Simply paying attention without pushing it away because we don't like it or pulling it forward because we want more of it. This, this back and forth, this is not the actual life that's being lived. This back and forth is, is us manipulating the life. But as we pay attention to it, it is actually an experience of love. And even though you may not have children, and some of you do, I have grandchildren, we all have been children, and we know that as a child, a child does not experience love without the attention. You can tell a kid that you love them, but unless you're paying attention to them, they don't feel it. Am I gorgeous, my child asks, drawing the word out like pulled taffy? Yes, I say, you are. The pink and teal dress is probably made of highly flammable material. Pudgy fingers decorated with pink polish trace the sequins on the bodice. I love this. A giant pair of bubblegum pink wings flap slowly. Little feet dance in sparkly red slippers. I'm just like a real princess. Yes, I say, you are. Thick blonde hair, blue eyes, rosy cheeks, flawless skin. This child is the epitome of beauty. 
this child, my son. He's four years old and prefers to wear dresses. Maybe it's a phase, maybe not. Even as I wonder how I produce such an angelic-looking creature, I wish he would put on some pants and go back to playing toy tractors, not because it matters to me, because it doesn't, but because I am already hearing in my head the name-calling he will face in kindergarten. Many adults already seem a bit disturbed by the dresses. Strangers utter awkward apologies when they realize he's not female. This culture wants little boys to dream only of baseballs, trucks, and trains. This culture has no room for little boys who want to be gorgeous. He picks up a parasol a neighbor gave him, and he opens it jauntily over his shoulder. Am I beautiful, he asks. I sweep him into my arms and plant a kiss on his cheek. Always. That child will have a so such a rich life because that parent paid that close attention with such great care and love. It transformed, it will transform that child's life. So I want to posit that paying attention to your own experience, to your own life, moment to moment, as we have been doing in that process, you are offering this profound act of self-love. Sometimes we look for it everywhere else in the world. But this, this paying attention to your own experience, the entire range of the sorrows and the joys. Accepting yourself for who you are in this moment. Again, this paying attention is so important. I came out to my parents 20 years ago. My father's no longer with, with us. Um, and, you know, Asians, Asian families are great vortexes of denial. If there's something uncomfortable, it will just never get spoken of. And I know that this is a cross-cultural experience, so... but. My experience is it is with this Asian family, and and we've done a lot of work together, and and my mother and I have have shifted a lot of things. And um, about 18 months ago, we were we were um, watching the news together on CNN, and and it was um, when Tyler Clemente suicided off the George Washington Bridge, and you know there was this whole um, media barrage and, and um, she turned to me and said, were you ever bullied? And I froze. I froze for so many reasons, including the memories of all those times. And I froze because, oh, she's just not going to get it again. 
And then I had to notice that she had never asked the question before. In 57 years, she had never paid attention. But she was paying attention now. So I offered my story for the first time. And it was not a very long conversation. It was maybe 10 minutes. And she said, why didn't you tell us? Why didn't you tell us we would have tried to do everything we could have? And in that moment, I realized that it's never too late. It's never too late to pay attention. It's never too late to love. It's never too late to have this experience of healing. And this is why our practice is so precious. It's never too late to love ourselves, to love others, to love the world. And I know that many of us are change agents in the world. We're engaged in important social justice and transformation. We can work to change the world because we hate the injustice, because we cannot stand the harm that's being caused that we are enraged by the injustice. Or we can be inspired to change the world because we love it so dearly, because we hold the world with such wondrous awe, because we realize how precious this life is and that we can't do anything else but serve and make it better with as open a heart as we can. These are two completely different experiences. And just feel which one can sustain a life in service. And I know from my own experience that the other is such a risk of burnout. So you arrive on retreat, whether it's a short one or whether you've been on other retreats before, and you know you still find that it takes a while for the mind to settle, if it ever does. That the body still has its pain and aches and itches, and you can't stay with the breath. And there's this feeling that, that arises that, oh, maybe this is not for me. I can't do this my mind keeps going off. It's, it, it, I just don't belong here. Or maybe the fact that you've, you've been at retreats for many times or many years. And this retreat is different. The facility is different. The support is different. Or the, uh, the, the talks are different. The instructions are different. And again, you know, maybe you don't belong here. And in this intention of this community to fully accept and also have 
all your needs taken care of in terms of accommodations and food, and yet still there is this possibility of feeling different. Do I really belong here in this moment? And that is where Maddie's telling of, of the Buddha's story is so important. Can we be here completely, regardless of the external circumstances that are emerging? That is the metaphor of, of Mara's um, attacks on the Buddha while he's sitting uh, underneath the Bodhi tree in his Dharma seat. That is the seat you take every time you sit. And Mara throws all of his efforts into the distraction, into pulling you off that seat. For a long time, as a person of color, as a gay man, as a, as a man who loves other men, I did not see myself in these meditation centers. And for a long time, I wanted the room to be different. I wanted to change the people in the room. I had these elaborate fantasies of how the room could be different. Craving. How much suffering is in that? And of course, it was unfair. There is unfairness in this world. That is the first noble truth. Are there any prerequisites to your freedom? Do you require that your life be fair before you are free? Because that will be a long time. Does your freedom depend upon life being fair? And as I worked with this, I was able to really allow the offering of these teachings to invite me to practice anywhere with anyone under any circumstance. And so I say to you, if you sit with a teacher you don't like, it is such a good practice. If, you, if, if the conditions are there and there's something that, that, that causes a lot of discomfort, it's such a good practice because the Dharma is still there. And just look at this room. The conditions have changed since, since those, those early years in my practice. Because more and more of us have been able to practice anywhere under any circumstance and are able to support a larger community. This is the transformation that's possible. Both Gandhi and Audre Lorde had said, be the change that you see for the world. This is the invitation. Practice deeply. 
become the leaders of Dharma communities of the next gen. This is where we will find our leadership in your experience. One of my friends who's a um, gay writer from Costa Rica introduced me to this term, la coherencia. And literally, I believe it means a sense of place. But he gave me a passage that is, um, he, 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 he said that it's not a term that's used that frequently. It's more of a lyrical or a poetic um, term. And the passage that he gave me um, describes it as referring to a place on the ground which one feels secure, a place from which one's strength of character is drawn. We must ask ourselves if we in fact feel secure in the place in which we have come to rest, if we can call this place our own. And if in fact we feel the slightest sense of discomfort there, are we up for the challenge that it offers to make it a better place. As we relax into this sense of belonging, wherever we go in this world, rooted in the sense of being here, in the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows of, of the range of our life, that I can be here for this present moment. I can be here for this pleasant feeling, or unpleasant feeling, or joy, or sorrow, even pain, or oppression. Not to be passive about it, but to know it deeply so that I can be part of that change. Those of you who are in the helping professions know that when someone comes to you in distress, what is the first thing you do? You do not fix them. That is the last thing they want. What they want really is to be witnessed. They want to be understood. They want their problems or their issues to be fully seen. This is what we do in mindfulness. We begin to understand and gain insight into how our lives are unfolding in order to transform, in order to transform into what? Towards less suffering and greater freedom. There's a practitioner that I know in Tallahassee an African-American woman who um, heard that uh, um, when I was talking about the walking meditation, heard about you know, how, how people walk on the land to, to develop a relationship to the land to, um, uh, to before the, the land is, is, is used to build. And she took that and combined it with the metta practice 
and began doing walking metta practice around the trees um, of the former plantations in Tallahassee where black men were lynched to heal the legacy of this generational cultural trauma. This, this violence of racism that still reverberates. She is taking this practice and making it her own, as well as that of her community. So for, for a moment, Forget that this practice is from Asia. Forget that most of the teachers in the West are white and heterosexual. The face of liberation is painted with the infinite colors in the universe. The breadth of the teachings know no geographic boundaries. And this has been shown over and over again as the Dharma has migrated from the northeast corner of India through Central Asia into uh, Tibet and China and Japan and Southeast Asia. The Dharma is a multicultural experience and it has been for thousands of years. And what is so curious is, is when the the European colonialists showed up in Sri Lanka. They found one spiritual tradition. And then, you know, over the decades of their whatever they did, and landed in Japan, they saw another spiritual tradition. And for decades, they thought it was completely different religions. It took them decades to figure out this is the same lineage. This is the same tradition. Because the Dharma, what is said is, is that when the Dharma moves into a culture, the Dharma changes that culture and is changed by that culture. It has that, that ability to support not just our individual experience, but the experience of our communities. There is a direct connection with what we do here and how we are in the world. This creation of peacefulness is so needed in our culture. Our practice is not some postponement into some unknown future of your freedom. It is moments of freedom in this weekend, in this moment. And remember, it's not just about your practice. It's not just about our practice. It's not just about a personal sense of salvation or awakening. It is about transforming our communities, how we live together. It's about transforming how our communities move in the world. 
all wisdom cultures tell us we are ancestors of generations yet to be. We are practicing for the worlds yet to come. This is the journey that we're on. This is the journey that the Dharma invites us into. Anna Julia Cooper, who was born in the age of slavery but lived to 105 and, and was um, a very important educator, said, the cause of freedom is not the cause of a race or a sect or a party or a class. It is the cause of humankind, the very birthright of humanity. Freedom is the great journey of this birthright. And the Buddha said he would not teach that which we could not do. And that freedom is possible. So may it be so for all of us that we that we rest in this practice for the benefit of ourselves, our loved ones, and really for all of our communities and all beings. Thank you for your attention. have about 30 minutes for walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.